Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Again, about 90 minutes to go until we get the October jobs report. Joining us in studio is Ellen Zentner, Chief U.S. Economist uh, at Morgan Stanley. Good morning, Ellen. Good morning. What's the, the relative importance uh, of this report? We had the Fed meeting this week, the, the two-day Fed meeting, uh, a dead meeting as we, as we characterized it, looking ahead here uh, to December. This is the first of two jobs reports we'll get before the next uh, Fed meeting in December. Put this into some context for us. Well, I hope that it's an unexciting uh, report. Uh, but there's always, with the employment reports, there's always the scope for a big surprise. Um, I think the sense is that, uh, you know, these employment reports are supposed to uh, be that very important incoming data that the Fed is watching as they're data dependent uh, and making decisions meeting by meeting, but they have lowered the bar so much for going in December. Uh, I can't say it's a foregone conclusion because everything can fall apart between now and then, Uh, but the employment reports report has a very low bar uh, that it needs to uh, rise above. Um, And I think as long as we get uh, anywhere between 100,000 and 200,000, that's right in the pocket. Um, And that's fine for the Fed. And it'll be sort of a ho-hum report because it's going to come in not far from expectations. Is this report more important in the political context? Again, the election here uh, next Tuesday, uh, this is something that could be uh, trumpeted or ballyhooed or, or, or the opposite here in, in, in the coming days? Is it more important how this is consumed by uh, the political side of things in the Fed? Yeah, well, you know, good data is always good for the incumbent party. And uh, it, it's it's not unique. This happens every election cycle where if the data looks really good and it's benefiting, seems like it's benefiting one party, the other party will exclaim that the government is manufacturing the numbers and they that they are fake. You know, what happens this morning if we get a blow out 300,000 payrolls, you might see uh, uh, Republicans step up and say, this data is manufactured in order to make a Hillary presidency look uh, uh, better. Um, And of course, that's not the case. But we also want to be fair and say this is not different than any other election cycle. Uh, We always have these exclamations of of falsehood, if you will, if the data is, is looking one way or the other. Looking ahead to that that next Fed meeting on the 13th and 14th of, of December, what are the, the near-term risks that, that, that could crop up aside from, from an election result that maybe goes against what people expect? Uh, well, I think certainly if you, if you had uh, some sort of uh, collapse in the hiring rate um, that, that we came, we just got very weak uh, job growth in this report, and we get another jobs report before that December meeting. Um, if the job growth is weak enough that the unemployment rate starts to tick back up, uh, that is something that Janet Yellen indicated in her Q&A after the September meeting that she was laser focused on, that the unemployment rate needed to fall further. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if job growth just isn't strong enough in order to get the unemployment rate to continue to tick down, uh, that might be something that leads to softer expectations of December. And then the Fed 
has a big decision to make. Uh, do they get out there and, and talk down expectations for a December hike on those reports, or do they continue to guide toward right. uh, a December and just say, but we're not going to do much on the other side of that? We need more evidence. Ellen Zentner with us with Morgan Stanley. What a spirited conversation we just had, Ellen, uh, over with surveillance on television with Peter Navarro in support of Trump economics. I want to back up and talk about this strange word, mercantilism, yeah. which comes over to a zero-sum worldview, and maybe we get a zero-sum America, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton. Help our audience understand what zero-sum means in a Zentner world. Well, zero-sum would mean that no one's running a current account deficit and that trade is completely fair and balanced on both sides and that uh, we, we have a, a, a basically a neutral trade balance with everyone, right? We export a lot to others and we import a lot from others and it all evens out. But that's never the case, right? Or, or everyone's currencies would be on par. Uh, currencies are the great equalizer. And it just so happens that, that, yes, growth doesn't feel great in the U.S., but you know what? It's better than elsewhere, and our currency reflects that. And it means that we ha do have to take one for the team, so to speak. If there's a global team, we're taking one for the team right now because we are on stronger footing than our major global trading partners. What that's done, though, is make it very difficult um, to digest when – we ourselves are not growing that strongly. Uh, we don't have as strong of a labor market as we'd like. Businesses are not investing as much as they like. And the easiest thing to point a finger to is, is that somebody else's fault, and it's because they're stealing share uh, from, from, from our well-being. Um, and that leads to this populist sentiment, which is a global phenomenon now and rising. right? And that has been the trend here in the U.S. as well. How long are we going to have to take one for the, the team, do you think? Looking at the dollar here, 97,215, uh, it's been strong for a while. How long do you think that's going to persist? Well, I think it's going to depend on the, the global business cycle. Um, how close are other major global central banks to uh, uh, coming off that easing bias, right? We are on a tightening bias. The Fed hasn't done much, but we are on a tightening bias because we're just at a different place in our business cycle. Um, but you have the, the ECB and the BOJ, you know, major global central banks out there um, that are still on an easing bias. And that's going to continue to keep pressure, upward pressure on the dollar. So to the extent that their economies start to, to bear the fruits of that labor and those central banks mm -hmm. can come off that easing bias, then you, you start to take some of the pressure off the dollar. Um, but this is a global cycle that's taking a long time to play out. And, uh, you know, areas of, of Europe are years behind us in terms of well, where they are in reparation post-financial crisis. That's right. We love having you on the radio. I didn't get to this before. What does Hans Redeker say about dollar for this year? How does Hans Redeker at Morgan Stanley dovetail a Zentner vision into his dollar call? Well, it, it's, a, it's a Zentner vision. I like the way you put that, Tom. It makes me feel very important. Excuse me. It's a Red Hans, I know you're listening. It's a Redeker vision. <laughs> well, but it, it's, it's so... Uh, so Hans Redeker sits down with our, the global economists, right? So it's not just my team, and says, well, what is your, what is your thinking around monetary policy? Uh, if, if, if the Fed is going to continue to tighten, other global central banks are going to continue to ease. Well, that's going to play into how he feels about flows into the dollar, 
um, and driving the dollar higher. Uh, I will tell you that, and you've talked to Redeker plenty of times, mm -hmm. um, if you want to have an hour-long program, he can... He can uh, uh, bring you to tears talking about current account deficits. I love that. Right. matters yeah. for his forecast. So, but but let's Stay keep tuned. it simple. Yeah. Let's keep it simple. A lot of that global central bank divergence matters for his calls when he's thinking about the dollar. Uh, it just to me, it's an extraordinary jumble here. And again, uh, we want to congratulate you on your call of 18 months ago that this would be a Fed that would delay and delay. The dots don't come down next year. All that much? Well, here's the thing, and this is something that our clients have been very, very focused on. Mm. Last year, the Fed hiked in December. Right. And they hiked because they said, look, you're expecting it. It's been extremely well communicated. We expect a little market reaction. Right, right, right. What they underestimated was the global reaction to the perceived promise that they were going to follow it up with four hikes. Here we are today. Have they delivered one of those? Mm -hmm. No. Um, at the September meeting uh, that we've just had, they lowered the path of the dots quite a bit. And now they're showing us that they would like to hike in December and they, at best, which is how we should look at it, at best, intend to follow it up with two hikes next year. That's a much slower pace than what they were showing last year. Our clients are asking us, so do we get the global fallout that we did last year? Same as last, Same year. As last year. Or is everybody going right. to digest it better? Showing us already that the path at best is going to be much slower. Okay. I think we'll go far in trying to appease global markets okay. Ellen, with gotta, this December high. Got to leave it there. Ellen Zentner, thank you so much with Morgan Stanley. It is Jobs Day. Much coming up on Economics. Jobs Day. It is Jobs Day four days before the matter of an election. He has darkened the door of the Oval Office in public service to the nation, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Kruger. Are, are you overtly in support of Secretary Clinton? Are you you know, neutral? Are you are you gonna come out for Trump economics this morning? What are you doing, Alan Kruger? Make some news here. <laughs> The uniformity of the economics profession against Donald Trump has been truly spectacular, I have to say. I, I am, Tom, an informal advisor yeah. to the Clinton campaign. Okay, very good. I want to rip up the script here, folks. It's Jobs Day. We're going to get to that in 50 minutes with all of our usual good guests. Professor Kruger, Jacob Viner, in the 40s, wrote the definitive piece on middle 20th century mercantilism. We didn't want to go back to that. We didn't want to repeat history. And a lot of courageous people from Atlantic Charter on said we're not going to do it like we used to do it. Do we risk from Secretary Clinton and from Mr. Trump tending towards a zero-sum America and an inward America that replicates the 1930s? I think that's certainly a risk from the Trump campaign. I think Secretary Clinton has voted for trade expansion in the past and voted against trade. So I think she's had a more nuanced view. But a candidate like Donald Trump, who says he wants to tear up longstanding trade agreements, I think is a real risk to the global trading system that we have, and more importantly, to the stability that we've built up since World War II. This overlays on your true expertise on the minimum wage and on labor in America. Define how you hear the primal scream from Senator Sanders and Mr. Trump's supporters. Well, the passion for doing more to help those who have been left behind in the economy, I think, is real and I think needs to be addressed. But I don't think the right solution is to turn inward to build walls. 
that hasn't helped us in the past and that will not help us going forward. Uh, I think that we need to look for solutions that grow the size of the pie and for solutions that lead to a more equal sharing of the benefits of economic growth. And I think those are out there. For example, a responsible increase in the minimum wage would help. Uh, a greater, uh, uh, wide, more widespread program of trade adjustment assistance would help. We've seen, we've seen the minimum wage rise at the local level at, at some state levels. Uh, is it at all likely that we would see it rise at the federal level, or is that ship sailed, and is this something that is percolating, is happening at a, a more local level now? Well, we, we've seen this movie before. In uh, the 1990s, when Congress didn't raise the federal minimum wage, the states acted, and then, remember, Newt Gingrich-led Congress raised the federal minimum wage. Uh, so I think that there's uh, some hope that we'll see a reasonable increase in the minimum wage in the future. What's a, what's a one thing, say, that, that Hillary Clinton took away from the, the economic platform that Bernie Sanders espoused when, when, he, was, when he was still running for president? How, how would she bent uh, in response to what, uh, what Tom called that primal scream? Well, I think there are a number of areas where uh, she uh, took on his ideas and they infused her ideas. Uh, I think the most prominent uh, has to do with access to post-secondary schooling, uh, making college affordable, making college debt-free. Uh, which was a, a major theme for Bernie Sanders and one that, that, yeah. that Secretary Clinton has adopted and espoused and seems passionate about. I, I want to just quickly here close a loop on what we were talking about earlier. Do the Chinese want a bigger pie? We're talking mercantilism. You espouse that we need a larger pie. Do the Chinese want a larger pie of trade? Uh, I think clearly trade has uh, been beneficial for their economic development. I think what they need to do in the future is to generate their own demand, uh, particularly with mm -hmm. household consumption. Uh, but as an economic advisor, I would advise them right. that they benefit from, from, from a bigger pie, no okay. question. Jobs Day, oh, 40 minutes or so, we'll get to that. And among other worthies, uh, William Gross of Janus Capital will join. Chief worthy right now is Alan Kruger of Princeton, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. We are waxing political, Professor Kruger. Let's now wax more job market. I did a chart today of the man session, the idea of 24, 25 to 54-year-old men. Uh, boy, it was good in the 60s and the structural change of women in the labor force. And it was ugly, and they've come back, but they can't get back further. Give us your research now on that interesting separation and combination of men and women in the workforce. What's the dynamic you're focused on? Labor force participation rate trends are really fascinating in the U.S. In the post-war period, labor force grew because more and more women joined the labor force. Men have been on this long-term downward trend, and that trend has continued. What's changed is that women are now mirroring men in terms of labor force participation of women peaked in 2000. Um, and that, I think, is significant because it means unless we have more population growth, primarily through immigration, it's unlikely we're going to see a major rebound in labor force participation. But now getting to the men, I have a, a new study that I presented at the Boston Federal Reserve Conference on October 14th where uh, I found that around half of the prime working age men who are out of the labor force suffer from a serious disability, uh, either mental or physical, 
almost half are taking pain medication on a daily basis. So I think we need to address the health concerns uh, in order to raise labor force participation for, for, for that group in particular. When, when you look at the, the numbers today, what will they tell us about where the jobs, your, your, your paper at that Boston Fed Cars, where, where the jobs, uh, wherever all the workers gone, where are the jobs today? Who is hiring? Is this still hiring that's largely confined to the, to the service sector? Well, we largely have a service sector economy. One of the interesting developments, however, is that in the recovery, manufacturing has started to increase uh, jobs. Uh, I was talking with the CEO at Party City uh, yesterday, and they're bringing jobs back because expenses are getting higher abroad. So I think we're seeing reshoring in manufacturing. But uh, certainly it's the case that the bulk of job growth currently and in the future is going to come from the service sector. Take a quick diversion here for a sec. You mentioned the Boston Fed Conference. You were there, of course, Janet Yellen, giving that speech on, on running a high-pressure economy, suggesting that it, it could be done, not committing to it by any means, but introducing the, the concept. How did that play in the room? Uh, that's a good question. I spoke right after her, so I was kind of <laughs> focused on my remarks. Yeah. Uh, but I did read her <laughs> remarks, and I was there for them. Um, economists have known for a long time that there are benefits of a high-pressure economy. There's a famous paper by Arthur Oaken in the Brookings Papers with the title, The High-Pressure Labor Market. Uh, Larry Katz and I wrote a paper in 1999 on the high-pressure labor market of the 1990s, which I was actually pleased to see that Chair Yellen had cited. So I think there are many benefits of a high-pressure uh, economy. Um, Wage growth is one. I think we see more opportunity for disadvantaged workers, for younger workers. I don't think it has that big an effect yeah. on labor force participation, but I do think there are many benefits of a high-pressure labor uh, market. Professor Kruger, Ellen Zentner was on earlier, and she, I believe, made the statement. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she suggested that too many of the jobs today are what we would call less quality jobs. Are they? I mean, how do, I mean, I know when you're, you know, uh, darkening the door of the Oval Office, you got to say a certain tune, and Jason Furman has done that with terrific research at the White House. But help me here: are these quality jobs? I think the job growth that we've seen looks a lot like <coughs> the makeup of jobs that we have, and I think what we need to focus on is how do we raise wages. In fact, Jason Furman and I have an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, where we. Uh, point out that in many cases, companies are taking non-competitive practices to keep wages low. There was an example of a court case in Detroit where eight hospitals settled a suit for non-competitive practices where they raised nurses' pay, uh, gave out a settlement of $90 million because they had suppressed pay. Uh, Non-compete clauses are far too common. So I think that there are steps yeah. that we can take to make the labor market more competitive that will raise pay okay. across the board. Thank you. Monopsony. Monopsony. Is, I was going to ask for a definition. No, this is wage my, collusion. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no. This Sorry. is a major deal. Uh, folks, I go. one of the great tests I have of an economics textbook is I literally go to the index and see if they even mention monopsony. Because monopsony to me, Professor Kruger, is way underrated. Not a misspelling the American of monopoly. Political debate. This is not monopoly. Right. We're not trying to get Oriental, and I don't want Baltic and Mediterranean. Professor Kruger, we need a clinic right now on how monopsony is important, and it's not monopoly, is it? To me, it is rubber plantations in Singapore. That's always the model I've used, where your price, you, know, you, you, you just you get the price you get. Monopsony is the flip side of monopoly. Thank it you. means that there's one buyer as opposed to one seller. Now, one of the things that we've learned in economics research is that you can have monopsony apart from a company town, not only in those rubber plantations, but companies can 
reduce competition by requiring their workers to sign non-compete agreements. Uh, Adam Smith, if you go back to the Wealth of Nations, and which you wrote an incredible introduction for within a, a, the Wealth I of Nations. I wasn't plugging that at the moment, but thank <clears> you. Uh, if you go back to the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith said that employers, whenever they get together, they tacitly talk about how do they collude to keep wages low. So there's been this pressure in the job market right. for a long time. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen job vacancies rising. Companies saying they can't get enough workers, but they've been reluctant okay. to raise wages. The price economics, the, think in Chicago here. Chicago is his school. It's out west, Professor Kruger. <laughs> the water, it, it's on just, the fresh water. Just okay. south yeah, of yeah, the yeah, Cubs right. near the White Sox. Um, <laughs> if you look at the price theory of monopsony, our listeners are saying, Professor Kruger, you don't know what you're talking about. If we have to raise wages, we're going out of business. How do you respond to entrepreneurs in America who say we've got to collude, whether it's direct, indirect, monopsony, whatever, or we go out of business. How do you respond? This clearly isn't the case. I mean, we hear this whenever the minimum wage goes up and we only see more and more job growth. If workers have more wages, that's going to help the <clears throat> macroeconomy. That's going to help consumption and the whole economy will grow. I was astonished reading your, your piece with Jason Furman this morning. Uh, the, the portion about non-compete clauses, 20 percent. You're right. If American workers have signed them, why why are we seeing so many uh, non-compete clauses uh, in employment contracts today? What's remarkable to me is we're seeing them in places where they clearly don't belong for warehouse workers, for fast food restaurant workers. And it's, I think, a very clear example of companies trying to restrict competition to make it so that they have more of a tied workforce, to make it so that they don't leave for higher wages down the street. And that's restricting comp competition. Uh, and that has really run amok, and I think it's a sign mm -hmm. of the imbalance in bargaining power between workers and companies. Help us. Let's circle around here in the, the minute and a half we've got left with you. Professor Kruger, if we have an election and both candidates say we don't want to be a rubber plantation in Singapore, we don't want to have monopsonistic tendencies in the United States, state the case for your candidate, Secretary Clinton. How is she going to make us less monopsonistic? Well, I think you've got both the positive and the negative. I mean, Donald Trump has stiffed his workforce in the past, uh, has really shown no commitment to raising uh, wages for middle-class workers. Uh, certainly his tax plan wouldn't help uh, middle-class compared to high-income folks. Uh, Secretary Clinton ha has spent her career trying to provide more opportunities for disadvantaged workers. Uh, and there's a lot that the administration could do. One of the things we point out in our op-ed in addition to raising the minimum wage, which I think would help to counteract some monopsony power, as long as it's raised to a reasonable level, the administration can more actively enforce antitrust laws, which prevent companies from, or legally mm -hmm. should pre prevent companies from colluding to keep pay low. One of the things the Obama administration and the Justice Department just did was to announce a hotline for human resource professionals to call in uh, and report instances of uh, illegal uh, competitive behavior in the labor market. And I think that could uh, help identify these cases and we could bring more court cases that, like the one in Detroit. Does that move jobs abroad? Does that move jobs to states that are more sympathetic to um, rubber plantation psychology? You know, that's a great question. And this Plan is really a win-win solution because the answer to that is no. If uh, companies are colluding to keep pay low, they can't get mm -hmm. enough workers. That's why they have right. vacancies. Uh, um, 
and what you see with monopsony is if you do raise pay, if, they, if you do force the cartel to break down, employment actually rises. So it could be a win-win situation where we okay. raise wages and raise jobs. David, did we get him fired up enough? Yes. Kruger's on, on fire monopsony. this week. Right. I'm going to send out on Twitter <laughs> a whole bunch of attachments on this. This happens to be a pet project of my monopsonistic dynamics. Furman Kruger, The Wall Street Journal this morning on your rubber plantation. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Joining us now, Bill Gross will join us, and we welcome Bloomberg Television uh, as well. Bill, good morning to you. Uh, the basic idea hey, I would I would suggest is this does not derail December, and it certainly doesn't affect the election. It's another good report, and yet you continue to counsel caution. I do. Uh, I would admit it's a it's a good report. I zeroed in on uh, two important factors. The work week was a. Point four, which is uh, higher than average, and uh, earnings, you know, were uh, growing more than uh, normal as well. And so you combine those together, and that's good for the consumer going forward. But I, I, I counsel caution uh, on the basis of structural changes, on the basis of a, a recent report by the Federal Reserve itself, uh, done over, you know, a, a six to twelve month period of time that spoke to demographics and. Uh, negative influence on growth over the past several decades and the potential for it to continue to be negative. Um, I focus on structural items such as uh, high debt and leverage and technology displacement of jobs over a longer term basis. And so, um, you know, the, the economy, Tom, to me is a, in a one to one and a half percent real growth mode. And, you know, as we shift to markets and the influence of that growth on markets, which is an important consideration. Um, earnings, not earnings per share, but earnings don't really grow at one to one and a half percent growth rates, and that's been the case for the past five quarters. GDP's averaged one and a half percent, and we've had an earnings recession, mild as it is. So, um, you know, markets had better look to real growth as opposed to unemployment and employment, which Janet uh, Yellen tends to do t for a accurate forecast mm -hmm. as to where asset prices right. are headed. Bill, you bring up growth. We got those GDP numbers a few days ago, that the headline number there of 2.9%. Look under the hood. Uh, maybe some worrying signs there. What does that say? How does that influence the Fed's path forward? Well, um, I, I think they're not necessarily sensitive to GDP. I heard your discussion with Jim Glassman in terms of uh, the Fed not necessarily focusing on a specific growth measure, and that's true. They focus on 2% inflation. But, you know, ultimately that type of growth rate uh, influences financial markets, and I do think the Fed is focused on financial markets. Should we get a, a shock, for instance, in terms of an election? Should we get 
an ultimate realization that the uh, major reason that equity markets are being held up uh, is due to the magic of central banks and quantitative easing, then, uh, you know, at some point if uh, markets start to decline and the Fed will back off, the Fed is a slave to uh, the financial markets as opposed to vice versa, which uh, is what I experienced and uh, many of you have experienced over the past 10, 20, and 30 years. Bill, a few weeks back you made the analogy of central bankers to martingale uh, gamblers. Here Macau is Frankfurt, I suppose, and the strip uh, is Threadneedle Street. From what we've seen here in the intervening couple of, of weeks, do you see central bankers now taking stock, reevaluating, becoming introspective? There have been all of these policy reviews. Are central bankers coming to uh, think about or maybe accept uh, the limits to what they're doing? Yeah, I, th I think to some extent. You know, to me, the ultimate question uh, is, is what is the new neutral policy rate, not just for the real economy and its uh, reflection in financial markets and asset prices, but for savers and savings institutions such as life insurance companies, pension funds, 401k, individual savers. Uh, and I think an increasing number of Fed members as well as, uh, you know, other uh, spokesmen uh, and women for other central banks um, are coming over to the side uh, gradually. We've seen two dissents, three dissents recently in, the, in terms of the Fed statement, but they're coming over to the side that uh, <clears throat> considers savers and the return on savings instead of just a rate that right. stabilizes <clears throat> asset markets. Bill, who are you going to support for president? I mean, I don't want to be direct, but it's four days to go here, uh, Mr. Gross. And, and I look at the job economy. I look how prescient you've been on our financial repression. Do you have a preferred candidate that can give us less Bill Gross financial repression? I don't. Um, you know, Trump has uh, minorly attacked the, the Fed, and I, I don't think I'm quite sure what would happen if he became uh, President, whether uh, Yellen would be asked to leave or not, uh, so, so that's that's not a positive, right. but it doesn't speak to financial repression and, and the fact that interest rates may gradually move higher and remove some of that repression. I think um, Hillary is a status uh, quo type of candidate, and therefore the financial repression that's existed for seven or eight years now in terms of low interest rates would be part of her mantra, uh, to my way of thinking, but right. she hasn't really spoken to that, has she? Uh, Bill, I, very quickly here, I spoke with Nicholas Comfort in Frankfurt today of the effects of negative interest rates on Commerce Bank of Germany. Negative interest rates are out there. You know it's a raging debate. Do we need to pull ourselves away from this experiment of negative rates? Do we maintain it into next year? What would be your counsel to global leaders? No, I think we need to pull away. I think that's one of the reasons. Uh, you know, ELN has been influenced by the, some of the, uh, the the Fed members in, in, in terms of just that, uh, you know, consideration. I, I, I think it's an experiment uh, to, to raise interest rates in, in a period of time in which, you know, inflation is uh, quiescent, so to speak. But, you know, uh, subjectively, as I've spoken for the last year or two and others, um, you know, negative interest rates have a influence on the real economy, and it's not always positive. It's not always trickled down. And uh, to the extent that bank uh, interest rate margins are narrowed and profits mm -hmm. uh, in that sector uh, aren't doing well, and to the extent that pensions and uh, 401ks and insurance companies are hurt by negative and narrow uh, interest rate margins, then you know, ultimately that affects right. the real economy, and it has for the well, last year or so. David Gurr and Tom Keene worldwide, and joining us now in the studio, he's not wearing a wig like the justices in England, John Farrell with us this morning, and 
Uh, they will jump in here in a moment with the good Bill Gross of Janus Capital. David? David Gray here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Greetings to our listeners uh, on Bloomberg Radio around the world, our viewers on Bloomberg Television as well. John Farrow, the anchor of Daybreak America's on Bloomberg Television and Daybreak Europe on Bloomberg Radio, uh, joins me as well. We are with Bill Gross of Janus Capital. And, Bill, let me ask you about how the clarion call for more fiscal stimulus is ringing out in, in Newport Beach. How are, how are you responding to the growing chorus of cries for fiscal stimulus from central bankers around the world? Well, we don't have uh, that many potholes in Newport Beach. The Irvine Company uh, sees to that. And, uh, you know, the infrastructure seems to uh, request, seems to be uh, just that, a, a plea for uh, fixing our bridges and fixing our potholes, and that's fine. Uh, you know, what, what amazes me, though, is, is that the, the word canes uh, rarely comes up on either side, rarely comes up in the press. It's almost like he's... Um, you know, been dissed in history, and that the Keynesian solution to economic growth, when it lags significantly in terms of fiscal spending, it is is never addressed. It's addressed in terms of infrastructure, shovel-ready. Even Obama has suggested that his shovel-ready program didn't really do much, and took one to two years to to get going. So, you know, to my way of thinking, it's it's vastly insufficient on either side. And what we really need is a fiscal spending program of significant proportions, perhaps as much as uh, one to two percent of GDP on an annual basis in order to pull us out of this thing. Well, play it out for us here real quick. Uh, Tom Keene asking you if, if, if you have a candidate in this election, both of them promising to do significant infrastructure spending, looking at how that will affect the markets if we have many billions of dollars spent on infrastructure, any measurable effect that you see uh, in the near term uh, and even in the long term? Sure, on the markets, uh, you know, in, uh, large uh, Keynesian stimulation, if it went that way, even infrastructure spending of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars is a, is a negative for, for the bond market. Bond, the bond market likes to see monetary stimulation, not fiscal stimulation. And so, you know, I, w- I would expect uh, after next week any result uh, that, uh, that came out in the form of uh, larger government spending as a percentage of GDP would be slightly bond negative. Uh, On the other hand, let me uh, suggest that uh, interest rates, the 10-year Treasury, for instance, is is sort of pinned by what other countries and other central banks are doing. With with the BOJ at 0% on their 10-year, that's a significant uh, magnet for U.S. interest rates to stay relatively low. A Japanese investor can sell a JGB to their central bank at uh, at minus six basis points for the 10-year and reinvested in treasuries at a currency hedged level of maybe 40 or 45 basis points pickup. So it, it's important where Japan is, it's important where the ECB is, and it's obviously important what happens in the election, but you have to blend all of that into consideration. And that, to me, speaks to interest rates, take the 10-year, being in a relatively tight range uh, because of the Japanese magnet and because of the potential for uh, higher government spending after the election. Bill, let's break out of the six-month intraday range and and talk about a 30-year bull market. Are you seeing anything on the horizon that suggests the 30-year bull market is over? Well, I I see a suggestion that uh, perhaps the rates bottomed. Uh, That's not the definition of a a bull market being over. I I, I would suggest the definition of bull market being over would be the initiation of a bear market. And I 
I, I simply don't see that as long as central banks continue to do what they do. Uh, you know, the three banks that are actively engaged now in the UK, uh, the ECB and uh, the Bank of Japan, you know, it's $180 uh, billion dollars a month in terms of uh, uh, spending uh, towards, uh, towards bonds that ultimately flows into equities. And even those uh, countries are buying equities and uh, corporate bonds. So uh, as long as that continues, very hard for a bear market. It doesn't mean, and I will put it right out front as I have for the past 12 to 24 months, that uh, this artificial stimulation one day uh, will end in, in ruin. But uh, as, as long as the money keeps being pumped out and you have a buyer for bonds in the face of higher inflation, um, you know whether it's two or two and a half percent still to be defined in yeah. various countries, then uh, it's hard for a bear market to begin. Well, Bill, are you that buyer? What we've seen recently is a steepening of the yield curve. I just wonder whether the flattener returns. You came on Bloomberg Television a couple of months ago and said that you'd shorten duration. Has your portfolio changed since then? Yeah, the duration has been uh, short, uh, you know, centering around zero. Uh, my point, and I've talked to Tom about this uh, and Mike about this over the past, uh, you know, several quarters, is that in this type of environment, if, if your main theory is that uh, yields are range-bound within a 20 to 25 basis point range, um, then it's not the buying or selling um, uh, on a trading basis that uh, that you know produces a total return, but it's the uh, the selling of volatility around those ranges that produces a much higher yield and a much higher return. You have to be right on that range, and if the ranges are broken, obviously um, you're not making money. But the selling of calls and puts uh, on a range-bound market is uh, perhaps the most attractive way to make money uh, in, in that type of market and that's what Janus has been doing and that's why we're you know, ahead by 5.3% this year, beating stocks and beating bonds. Bill, you've written with, with alarm and in sweeping terms about what central bank policy is going to mean for, for capitalism, the transformation of, of capitalism. Uh, do you see that transformation underway right now? Is it inevitable? Where does that stand? Oh, I do. Uh, and you can see it. Uh, there's a there's a counter argument to what I'm about to uh, to uh, disclose, but there's you can see it I think in in the form of uh, capital expenditures relative to GDP. Um, you know uh, what what zero interest rates and negative interest rates do is bring consumption forward in a multitude of fashions, and uh, to the extent that consumption has been brought forward and. In, corporations sense that. In other words, they sense that future consumption will not match uh, past consumption. Then uh, capitalism itself, the willingness to invest money in uh, capital plant and equipment, you know, is diminished. And, and we've seen that. Um, we also see it in terms of productivity numbers. Yes, they were good uh, this week, around 3%. But year on year, it's a, a flat 0% you know, productivity increase. And so, yeah, we're beginning to see capitalism as we once knew it, uh, you know, fade at the margin. Um, and, and is it because of 0% interest rates or is it because of uh, some savings glut as a, a ex-chairman Bernanke would describe? I, I, I think it's the former as opposed to the latter. I, I don't think any uh, economist with common sense as opposed to, you know, uh, university-trained modeling would deny that the zero percent interest rates distort capitalism. Capitalism can't can't function uh, if there's no return on short-term money or low return on long-term money. It just 
is, is common sense. Let's return here your lastly to the jobs numbers today. I'm curious about uh, how that factors into your investment strategy, what you're looking at these job numbers uh, for. Uh, your sense of the, the role of central banks here seems very well, well established when we get a monthly report like this one. Does it change anything measurably for you? Well, it, it does affirm December. Uh, de December is, to me is, is slam dunk. This is a, a good, uh, good report, and uh, there's no reason now for Yellen to continue to bluff and to bluff and to suggest that uh, uh, at the next meeting they would uh, consider it seriously. They will raise uh, the funds rate in December. The question becomes, how often will they raise it after that? What is the pace of normalization? And I, I know that the markets only believe that uh, Fed funds and short rates will be raised by 25 or even less over a 12-month period of time. But, but in any case, um, you know, what today's report suggested is that the Fed's on the move, but I, I suggest they'll move very, very slowly and that interest rates and financial uh, uh, intermediation will uh, continue mm -hmm. to, to um, exist as it has. Bill Gross, thank you so much. Just remember, Bill Gross, it's a great Southern California tradition. Vote early, vote often. <laughs> I'm sure you will uh, assist in that. Mr. Gross, thank you so much. He is with Janice Capital. And, of course, uh, I do urge you to uh, read his essays at Janice Capital, widely available. And, of course, with his great influence on the bond market, people pay attention. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.